Good morning. Well, it was uh, a chance to turn our clocks back and gain an hour. And I was told that I get to speak an extra hour today. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. When I was in South San Francisco, it was a very, very small congregation. And one of the most precious things to me was an opportunity each year to serve communion to the congregation, to all those who gathered. And I, I did that all by myself. <laughs> and that was just so precious to me, uh, so full of meaning. And we, the pastoral staff, want to do that on First Fruit Sunday. We want to serve. And that's not something we can do every Sunday. And that's why we're not observing the Lord's table this morning. We're, we're waiting until First Fruit Sunday, the 24th of this month, to do that so that we can so that we can do that ourselves. So we hope you'll understand and look forward to that and uh, join us on that special day. Will you marry me? This morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, and if you will, turn in the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 21. And we're going to read to verse 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
I know that not everyone here this morning is married, but if you'll permit me, I just want to draw a couple observations from my own experience about marriage. On our wedding day, we never imagined that we would take each other for granted. I never imagined that I would take the love of my life for granted. And yet we do. And I have. I've learned I need to say I do more than once. And this is coming from a guy who saw her in the choir that very first time and mused about marrying her. If I were to get married, but I wasn't. And if I were to become a Christian, but I wasn't. And this from a guy who later gave his life to Christ, joined the church, apart from her, in fact, I didn't even see her. This from a guy who in a Bible study saw her enter the room and was mesmerized. This from a guy who was ushered next to her at church and swooned with emotion. This from a guy who asked around about her and was told she's engaged. A guy who became acquainted with grief. And this from a guy who against his will went along for a ride and overheard it said, she's broken off her engagement. And this from a guy who the very next day, shy, praying, rehearsed, and stammering, called for a date. And this from a guy who arranged a grand first date, a sunset picnic, and wished it would never end. This from a guy who, four months later, asked her to marry him, and they were, five months later. And this from a guy who tells you now that that girl has been God's greatest individual gift to me. And yet, he's taken her for granted. But that girl and our marriage was anchored in a first love, a first vow to Jesus Christ. Vowing your life to Jesus Christ is a marriage. He comes first, and keeping Jesus first keeps us grateful for what he loves and what we may otherwise take for granted. I took the church for granted. I married Jesus. I didn't marry the church. I didn't even go to church. I didn't take him for granted but I took the church for granted. 
I took all the negative, fault-finding stereotypes for granted. And I didn't see the church the way Jesus saw her. I didn't want to be associated with her. I guess in some ways it was a matter of pride. And early on in my Christian walk, my private Christian walk, my devoted Christian walk, my marriage to Jesus. And I, you know how we start to apologize when we say, I heard from Jesus. I got this Jesus vibe. It was so clear. And this is what that vibe communicated to me. Jesus was impressing upon me, prompting me, waking me up to the fact that he loved the church. And it was as though he said to me, if you love me, John, and if you call me Lord, you have to love what I love. And so I began to love the church. And early on, I read the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, which many believe is a church that was circulated in that entire Lycus Valley of, of actually many churches. Perhaps it had uh, the heading, of, in fact, of, of the church of Ephesus, but there were many churches in that area. And the reason the reading of Ephesians was important to me is because Ephesians is the crown and climax of Paul's thinking and theology. It gives the most insightful presentation of the church in all of the New Testament. And Ephesians tells us how to be the church. It is our identity formation. And so I'm going to be looking at Ephesians again. And I want you to look with me today, next Sunday, and the following Sunday as we consider the way Jesus sees the church. Paul calls the church, not only the church, which means congregation, gathering, assembly, community, but he calls the church Christ's body. He calls it God's family. He calls it the most profound mystery, the Messiah's bride, the Messiah's bride. How do you see the church? See the church the way Jesus sees her. I hope this is uh, true of every parent at some point in uh, their experience in parenting. And, and, and the reason I say that is because I, I don't mean to single out my son, but when Jordan was uh, transitioning from his senior year of high school to his first year of college, and uh, he was here with us. It was our first year in Visalia. And I don't remember what day or week, but I remember the occasion. 
And Jordan came up to me and he began to tell me about what his mother had done to him. He tattled on her. He emphasized the way his mother had talked to him and failed to sympathize with him and understand him and ask of him things that he didn't feel were appropriate. And as he began to go on and on, I interrupted him and I said, excuse me, you're talking about my wife. You're talking about the woman I love. Don't talk to her about that way ever again. He didn't see her the way I see her. He didn't love her the way I love her. He didn't understand her the way she truly needed to be understood. He was just a high schooler. Why is loving the church so difficult? Our view gets distorted. We see a particular building, a bickering denomination, a fraudulent televangelist, uh, an embarrassing scandal in the news. The church viewed that way does not endear us. We're not particularly proud of it. In fact, this week I, I googled the question, why don't you like the church? Boy, did I get a lot of answers. In fact, just at one site alone, why don't you go to church was a question that they were asking at about.com. 427 responses. I read about 45, and I was just so discouraged. I was even ashamed. I felt bad. There's a lot of legitimate hurt out there associated with the church. There's a lot of things that are done in the name of the church that don't seem anything like Jesus to me. And it makes me ashamed. It makes me sad. And you know what? I even feel it personally because I know that I've done that myself. Now, I bet if you looked at yourself closely, you'd have to admit you have too. We need heaven's perspective of who we are. That is why we routinely observe the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. We need to be reminded of who we are. That is why we get together like we're gathered right now in his name because we need to be reminded who we are. But there is a heavenly perspective that we also need to add, and it's in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. I'd like to read it to you. Paul's writing here, he says, I to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Heavenly places occupied by heavenly authorities are looking down at God working through the church with amazement and wonder. They're in awe of the manifold, varied, multiplex, complete wisdom of God. They're glued to the action unfolding through the church. And why? Because the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed in the spiritual mystery hidden for ages, is being revealed through the church. What is the wisdom? It's the power of the gospel being worked out in real lives and real relationships. Ephesians tells us through the gospel, sinners are not only being reconciled to God, they're being reconciled to each other. In the church. Heavenly beings look down at the church and they see an amazing family. The power of the gospel is not only changing individuals, but also creating a whole new kind of humanity. Shelley's family, my parents divorced, both my parents died at an early age for me, at an early age, but for me an even earlier age, Shelley's family meant so much to me. I was grafted into that family. Uh, it was a family I adored, I admired, I respected. But in any family, even their family, There's bickering, there's misunderstanding, there's an unkind word here, a mistreatment there. On Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, it was common that her family would invite in people who had no family to, uh, to join on such special occasions. And so it was quite common in her family, to have people who were not grafted like I was. But it was amazing to me how I saw through their eyes her family because they saw it more beautiful than even I had come to, to view it. As special as I thought it was, I didn't realize just how special it was until it was met and felt and appreciated by those who didn't have family or their family was broken or completely dysfunctional. And then again, I was refreshed and encouraged to realize what a privilege it was to be a part of her family. If you ask me why we should love and care about the church, the strongest argument to me is this. Jesus does. 
Jesus does. He loves the church. And we're going to look at that in the next uh, three Sundays. We need to see the church the way he sees her. We need to love her the way he loves her. We need to serve her the way he serves her. And this morning, I just very briefly, as we look at Ephesians 5, I want us to see her the way she sees the Lord. See her the way she sees the Lord. See the church the way she sees the Lord. Because how she sees the the Lord is important to how we see her and how she sees herself. The church is the bride of Christ, and she adores her husband. We have to adore Jesus to be the church that Jesus wants us to become, but he loves us, and that's what draws us to love him. We turn to Ephesians 5 for guidance on marriage, but here Paul gives far greater emphasis on the church and Jesus, her Messiah, Lord, and Savior, than he gives to the husband and wife. And because this is so, submission is expected of all. That's why verse 21 is vital. The word submit doesn't even need to be written in verse 22. Perhaps you thought I made a mistake and you're always so kind to me that you didn't get upset with me too much. But I read it just the way Paul's letter reads in the Greek. In verse 21, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, to your own husbands. As to the Lord. That's the way it reads. Because that notion of submission, one to another, not in any way gender based or economics based or high school awards based or dashing good looks based or any other criterion. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then wives to your own husbands, to your own husbands, own emphasized, to your own husbands out of reverence, as to the Lord. It's implied by the mutual expectation of verse 21. The husband is to be submissive to Christ too. He's not excluded from verse 21. The pastor isn't excluded from verse 21. No one is excluded from verse 21. It's the way the church regards her Lord. And it should be expressed by us all. A deference, a respect, seeing the Lord in each and every one. And it should be so much a glory and distinguishing feature of the church that it truly becomes the characteristic of the church because 
It is a submission unto Christ, the Messiah. He's called the Messiah, the Head, the Lord, and Savior. Submission. Submission is not weakness. In the Bible, biblical submission is strength. Oh, if I could just impress upon you, submission is strength. It's strength that willfully, volitionally, by choice, chooses to honor and to elevate another. When someone shows you that kind of respect, it's elevated. The honor is elevated. The glory is elevated because that person, not out of weakness or poverty or inferiority, but because of choice, because it's their will, their decision, they honor you. And that is the honor that the church is to show her Lord. It's the I do of faith to Jesus Christ that takes him as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord and Head. It's the I do of faith that makes us his bride, his church. It's the I do of faith that makes us say I do to one another. It's true that the husband is not the savior of his wife the way Christ is the church. In fact, the word which isn't uh, expressed in a lot of our translations, the word but in verse 24 acknowledges that. It shows us that the church submits to Christ, and it is as the church does that. As verse 21 is honored, the church is to demonstrate to wives how they are to honor their husbands. It shouldn't be something extraordinary. It'd be something that characterizes us all. Because when we love him, when we say I do to him, we love one another and we say I do to one another. We exemplify it and characterize it. If we expect, you know, when you read 20, in, in fact, the word submit occurs in verse 21, and the next time it occurs, it is used of the church before it is then expressly used of the wife. Yes, it's understood in verse 22, but it's rolling right out of verse 21. And the next time it is expressly stated in Paul's letter, it is the church, as she submits to the Lord, that the wife is to follow in honoring and submitting to her husband in everything. And if because she's sub to submit, we expect the husband to rule, she submits, husbands, rule your wives. But that's not what we get. We get love as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 25, and why? 
This I want you to see. There's a purpose to make her holy by his word and clean by the bath in water. That's a very literal translation. To make her holy by his word. And secondly, to present her to himself. And it expressly says, the church, to present the church in splendor, in radiance to himself. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Think about that for just a moment. It isn't the church already splendored, already glorious, already radiant. It's the church with spot and wrinkle and such, but he is, through his love, making her holy. That's what the word sanctify means, to actually set her apart unto himself, to make her special unto himself. Like every husband is to make his wife. And through such love that informs and defines that specialness that says you and you alone, through that kind of love that informs and defines that specialness, spot and wrinkle and such are being transformed into radiance and beauty. See her as the Lord sees her. That's so beautiful. And see her the way we see ourselves. I'm not going to dwell on this very long, but in verses 29 through 33, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh. You can't get more intimate and graphic about me or you than to speak of yourself in terms of your flesh. And he's leading up to something. He's saying, just as you and I nourish and cherish our flesh, we are to nourish and cherish our spouses. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives as their own flesh. And the model is that Jesus so cherishes the church. In fact, he cites Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You know, the husband shall leave his wife and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, here's the real mystery. That wasn't talking about husbands and wives. It's talking about the church. That's the way Paul is taking it here. To say that there is an intimate bond between you and me and the Lord that is as intimate as two, husband and wife, becoming one flesh. And the profound thing is that we're to see the church as we see ourselves, you see, because he says here in these verses, we are members of his body. In other words, even as the Lord loves us, even as we can infer from the thrusts of what Paul is saying here is that I'm a part of that flesh. Jesus loves me like that. 
I'm one with him like that. And yet in the same way, we are to look at one another that way and to see his church that way. Because he loves her. We can't stand aloof, stand apart, divorce ourselves from the church. We've got to love the church as he loves it for the same purposes that he has at heart, that he should present her unto himself without spot, that is smudge or disfiguration. It's interesting how many different ways the word spot can be used in in other people's language. And without wrinkle. Boy, I'm so glad the Lord loves me more now than he loved me when I was young and uh, supple and tight-skinned, you know. When the muscles start to sag, there's a spiritual reality here, isn't there? Or any such thing, he loves his church that way. You remember, I've talked about it twice over the years. Johnny Lingo and the eight-cow wife. The story set on a little island. I imagine it's a Polynesian island because there are other islands around. And there's a business conversation taking place between an American trader and a local And the local advises the trader to seek out the services of Johnny Lingo. He's known as a shrewd judge of value and the sharpest trader in this part of the Pacific. At that, the visiting trader notices that others who are present and have overheard this conversation start to kind of chuckle and smile at one another, and he thinks that somehow there's a joke being played on him, so he demands to know the joke. And the local explains to him that five months ago, Johnny Lingo found a wife and paid a dowry of eight cows to marry her. Now you have to understand that in that culture, two to three cows buys a fair to middling wife, four to five a highly satisfactory wife. But eight cows is unheard of. No one has ever paid eight cows for a wife. And the American trader begins to imagine her beauty. He wonders, her beauty must take your breath away. And so it is that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for a woman described charitably as plain. The local explained to the trader that she was little and skinny with no endowments. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked as if she was trying to hide behind herself. Her cheeks had no color. Her eyes never opened beyond a slit, and her hair was a tangled mop half over her face. She was scared of her own shadow, frightened by her own voice. She was afraid to laugh in public. She never romped with the girls. So how could she attract the boys? 
In fact, at the village council, her father was advised to ask for three cows. Hold out for two until he could be sure that he would get one. But her father was so worried she'd never get married that he knew he wouldn't hold out for anything. Johnny Lingo marched right into that council and announcing he was giving eight cows for his daughter. And he paid on the spot. The cows were right outside. Johnny took Serena to the island of Cho for their honeymoon immediately and then went on to his home on another island, Narabundi. And Johnny hasn't been seen since, the local told the trader. Travel scarce between the islands except at festival time. Well, the trader decided to check out the story and he traveled to Johnny's home on Narabundi. And the next day, when he reached the island where Johnny lived, he met him, a slim, serious man. He says that Johnny welcomed me to his home with a grace that made me feel like the owner. I was glad that from his own people he had respect without mockery. I told him that his people had told me about him. They speak much of me on that island. What do they say? Asked Johnny. Well, they say you're a sharp trader, I said. They also say the marriage settlement that you made for your wife was eight cows. I paused. Then went on, counting, coming as close to a direct question as I could. They wonder why they say that. His eyes lighted with pleasure. He seemed not to have noticed the question. Everyone in Kiniwata knows about the eight cows, he asked. I nodded. And in Narabundi, everyone knows it too, he said. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, he said. When they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought. All this mystery and wonder amounts to his pride. It's not enough for his ego that he's the smartest, the strongest, the quickest. He had to take himself, make himself famous for the price he paid for his wife, a poor one at that. I was tempted to deflate him by reporting that in Kiniwata they think he's a fool. As we spoke, a woman entered the adjoining room and placed a bowl of blossoms on the dining room table. She stood still a moment to smile with sweet gravity at the sight of the young man before me. Then she went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. This girl had an ethereal loveliness, the dew fresh flowers with which she'd pinned back her lustrous black hair accented the glow on her cheeks, the lift of her shoulders. The tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes, all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her. And as she turned to leave, she moved with grace that made her look like a queen. After she left, I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at me with eyes that reflected the pride that she had shown as she looked at him. You admired her, he murmured. She's, she's glorious. 
Who is she? I couldn't help but think if she was a servant, how difficult it must be for homely Sarita, having to daily be in the presence of such a beautiful woman, and what a temptation for Mr. Lingo. She's my wife, he told me. I stared at him blankly. Was this same custom I'd not heard about? Do they practice polygamy here? He, for his eight cows, bought Sarita and this other? Before I could form a question, he spoke again. This is the only one, Sarita. His way of saying the words gave them special significance. And he continued, perhaps you wish to say she does not look the way they say that she looked in Kiniwata. She doesn't. The impact of the girl's appearance made me forget tact. I heard she was homely, I said. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be. You think I was cheated? You think eight cows were too many? A slow smile slid over his lips. She can see her father and her friends again, and they can see her. Do you think that anyone will make fun of us then? Much has happened to change her. Much in particular happened the day she went away. You mean the day she married you? That, yes, but most of all, I mean the arrangements for the marriage. Arrangements? Do you ever think, he asked, what it does to a woman when she knows that the price her husband has paid is the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later, when all the women talk as women do, they boast of what their husbands paid for them? One says four cows, another six maybe. How does she feel, the woman who was given for one or two cows? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you paid an unprecedented number of cows just to make your wife happy? I asked. Happy? He seemed to turn the word over on his tongue as if to test its meaning. I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she's different from the way they remember her in Kinawata. That is true. Many things can change a woman, things that happen inside, things that happen outside. But the things that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kiniwata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows that she is worth more than any other woman on the islands. Then you wanted, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman, but, and I was close to understanding, but he finished softly, I wanted an eight-cow wife. What price did Jesus pay for his bride, the church? How should the value of the church in Jesus' eyes change its value in our eyes? You're part of that value. 
You are the church. This church. It was born on Pentecost when 11 deeply discipled and 120 committed followers were filled with the Spirit. How they saw themselves was totally determined by their Messiah, Lord, and Savior. It shaped the way they lived. And we are to see ourselves and the church the same way. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, may we see you as Lord, Head, Messiah, Savior. Not take you for granted, Lord. You who never take us for granted, who love us, who gave yourself for us. And Father, may we see your bride that you gave everything for as you see her. Love her as you love her and serve her as you serve her. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.